Everyone, thanks Lara and thanks Emma for reading for us. That was uh, wonderful, wasn't it, to have the Bible read for us this morning. And um, hopefully you've kept your Bibles open at Hebrews chapter 9. Good to be back in Hebrews. Um, and let me just start with an apology. That is, I found Hebrews 9 to be a, a passage with lots and lots of detail in it, and I haven't covered it all. And so if you have questions, please do write it on your Connect cards, and I'd love to or come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you further about uh, the parts that I don't say too much about today. Uh, we have prayed, so let me uh, let me get some congregation participation. Uh, who can tell me uh, what will happen if you take a fresh slab of meat or a, a glass of milk and leave it outside in the sun all day? It'll go off, right? It's not going to be so good at the end of the day, is it? Left out in the sun. Well, the thing about that's the thing about meat and milk, right? Is that they don't actually have it within themselves to stay fresh. Uh, Outward things can influence or speed up the process, like the sun, for example. But in the end, the very nature of meat and milk is corrupt. Uh, it can't stay fresh on its own. Well, human beings are like a slab of meat or a glass of milk. I'm sure you've been described like that before, but there you go, you have this morning. And I don't mean that we'll kind of start to smell in a few days and decay if we're left unattended, although I have seen that happen to a few teenagers before. Um, <laughs> But what I mean is that we don't have it within ourselves to stay morally fresh. Our human nature doesn't have it within itself to prevent moral corruption. Outward things can, of course, speed up the process, like our upbringing or uh, whom we choose to hang out with, but in the end, we can't stay morally fresh on our own. Every human being is, by nature, prone to moral failure. Now, let me just test the theory for a moment, if I can. I want, I want you to put your hand up if you've never murdered anyone. Look around you. If there's someone with a hand down, run. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Maybe, maybe the theory's not true. I don't know. You guys all seem like you're very good people. Now, now keep your hand up if you've never stolen a car. Good. That, that, that's, that's pretty helpful. Um, Never got a speeding ticket or a red light fine. Keep your hands up. <laughs> wow, still a couple of morally undefiled people amongst us. Excellent. Of course, if you haven't started driving yet, that doesn't, you know, that, that, you know I am very pleased that you haven't received one of those. Um, keep your hand up if you never cheated, never told a lie, never spoken nastily behind somebody else's back. Okay, so maybe not such a, a great bunch after all. <laughs> Can I say, the reality is that no one has it within himself or herself to stay morally fresh. And the fact is, we know it. We've experienced the guilt of our wrongdoing from time to time. We, we have a conscience that warns us when we're doing wrong. It helps us to do the right thing, but we often ignore it. And as a result, we experience guilt Yes, some people live with incredibly deep and debilitating guilt and shame. They cringe with fear at the possibility of someone finding out what they've done. Perhaps I'm even talking about someone here. Of course, the likelihood is that I am. Our sin creates a problem for us because the Bible actually tells us that God is completely holy and righteous. I think we've heard it in the kids' talk this morning. Chapters 9 and 10 are actually based on that fact here in Hebrews. Uh, his very nature can't even tolerate moral imperfection or sin of any kind. 
Now, that's not the problem in and of itself, but the problem comes because we're told that God is also our judge. Now, if that's true, then that is the problem. What do you think would happen if, uh, if you ate that slab of meat or drank that glass of milk after it had been left out in the sun for a whole week? I reckon, yes, your body would expel it, get rid of it, vomit it out. Your body couldn't tolerate its corrupt nature even if you wanted to. And the Bible tells us that we rely on this perfectly holy and undefiled God for our very existence. It also says that we can only exist in his presence if we're equally undefiled. Otherwise, we too will be expelled. The problem is, of course, that our natures are corrupt. We know we sin. Our consciences actually bear witness to ourselves that we're guilty. And so if we're to be accepted by God and avoid his judgment, then our guilt must be dealt with. Now, can I say that if sin doesn't matter to you, then this chapter will be really boring. Because this is a chapter that reminds us that our sin is very serious, but that God loves us so much. And he has made a way to cleanse us from all sin. Now, what are some of the ways? I asked this question to the staff this week. What are some of the ways that people try to deal with their guilt when they've done something wrong? Now, here's five of the ways I think we came up with. One is people try to forget it, just kind of block it out, ignore it somehow. Uh, sometimes people will just downplay it. It's not that big a deal. Other times people will try to justify their behaviour. Or sometimes they will blame someone else. That is, I wouldn't have done that if they hadn't have done that. Or we said, um, confession is also one of the ways that we deal with guilt. And confession, of course, is clearly the best of those ways. Because you've actually done something to deal with the problem appropriately. You've, you've acknowledged it. Now, you may need to do something to make up for what you've done. But in the end, how can our guilt before a holy God be dealt with? Well, ultimately, that's what Hebrews 9 and 10 is about, both the old, the temporary way that God had set up to enable people's guilt to be dealt with, and also the new and effective way by which we can now have guilt-free consciences. What a wonderful thing that would be, huh? Well, let me just pick it up again from, if you've got your Bibles there, open to chapter 9 of Hebrews, let me just pick it up again from verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the, lamp, and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, in the Old Testament, the uh, way that in which Israel related to God revolved around an earthly tabernacle or temple. Uh, the tabernacle was the tent uh, that the Israelites carried around with them and set up in each place that they settled. Uh, it was later superseded by the temple which was built in Jerusalem, but both the ritual and the layout were essentially the same. Now, you, have, you can see it there on the screen. It gives you a bit of an idea of what it looked like. Um, the key area of the tabernacle 
was another tent sitting inside the outer walls. It was divided into two sections by a thick curtain. The first section was called the holy place and the second is called the most holy place. It's the area that we've just read described there in verses 1 to 5 of Hebrews 9. Now notice that they get their name from the character of God. God is holy and the place is called holy because uh, this is where God chose to be present with his people. Now the author also refers to the articles that are kept in this holy place and they're actually very significant. So none more so than the Ark of the Covenant. There's a bit of a depiction of it there that you can see. It was a, a portable chest made out of wood and overlaid with gold. Three things we're told was, were kept inside, a, a gold jar containing manna, that was the food that God provided for the Israelites when they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Uh, there was Aaron's staff that had budded as a, a reminder of how God chose his family and his tribe to become the priests of Israel. And then finally, the stone tablets of the covenant, uh, the Ten Commandments, we might think of them as, uh, which was the solemn written agreement between God and his people made at Mount Sinai. And then also significant were the, the, what was called the cherubim of glory. They were the uh, two winged figures like angels set on top of the chest as a sign that God's glory or his presence was there. And then finally there was the mercy seat or the atonement cover. Uh, it, it was a, a slab of gold that fitted exactly over the top of the ark and it was a reminder that the covenant with God included a way of forgiveness through sacrifice. See, what does atonement mean? Well, it means it's the means by which God and people are reconciled to one another or made at one. Uh, someone has actually coined the phrase from atonement, uh, at one as a way of remembering it. It's the turning away of anger. And in this case, it's the righteous anger of God at us for our sin against him that is turned away. Now, the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that God is angry with humanity because of our sin, but he is also a God of mercy. And this most holy place was a place of access to God, the place that was set up by God's initiative. He's the one who provides the way to be forgiven. But it could only come about by sacrifice. Now, let me just take a moment to show you the, uh, the seriousness of the problem and why the need for sacrifices. We read from Leviticus chapter 16 before. Let me just take you back there on the screen, uh, and I'll pick it up from verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. You notice there that Leviticus 16 begins with a warning, stay away. You couldn't just walk into the holy place and approach God. Not even Aaron, the high priest, could just walk in or he would die. In fact, his two sons had died trying back in chapter 10 of Leviticus. Our sin cannot enter the presence of God's holiness. Sin actually separates people from God and needs to be dealt with. 
And so even the high priest, when he was to enter the most holy place on behalf of the people, had to have his own sin dealt with. And so a bull would be taken. And the high priest would you know, press his hands down on the head of the bull to signify a transferal of guilt, a transferal of his sin and the people's sin to the animal. He would then slit the throat of the bull and collect its blood to sprinkle on the altar and burn it as a sacrifice, a sin offering for himself and for his people. Now have a look at what Hebrews has to say about it in verses 6 and 7 there of Hebrews 9. These preparations having thus been made, that is the setting up of the tabernacle, uh, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Uh, This sacrificial system was an act of God's mercy that enabled sinful humanity to find forgiveness. God wants to forgive the sinner. That's why he had a day of atonement. It's also why he sent the Lord Jesus, as we'll see. See, the whole system is set up by God's initiative. He's the one who provides the way. It's not set up by humans. But it was also a reminder to the people of their inadequacies and their inability to really get close to God. Now, we can see that in that only the priests were able to enter into the holy place and only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And he could only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement after an elaborate ritual of sacrifices to cleanse himself and the people. And after all that, only one sinful man could be in the presence of a holy, sinless God. And so for the people themselves, there was actually no direct access to God. Their only access was through the priest or through the high priest who sacrificed an animal for a sin offering, shedding its blood to make atonement and cleanse the people for their sins. See, the the Day of Atonement tells us the power of blood. When the animal dies because the wages of sin is death. It's what we call substitutionary atonement. You may or may not have heard those words before. The animal doesn't deserve to die, you do. The animal is your substitute. The blood is spilled because when we drain your blood, you're dead. But in the end, it was only ever intended to be a shadow or a a visual aid, if you like, of what was really needed. Have a look at the outcome there from the second part of verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. the, The old covenant system of dealing with our sin and getting right with God was ultimately inadequate because it couldn't actually clear the consciences of people. Something else was needed, a a new and better way. Have a a look at a couple of verses with me. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. And then skip your eyes down to verse 24. 
For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see, if the high priest entered into the most holy place, then our author wants us to know that Jesus himself entered into the most holy place. Christ came as our high priest. And instead of entering into an earthly man-made tabernacle, he entered into the real, into the ultimate tabernacle, into the heavenly sanctuary of God himself. Christ has entered heaven itself. And he didn't stand in front of a gold-plated chest. He came before God himself, representing us, having died as the sacrifice necessary to pay for our sin. He was, in fact, the ultimate sacrifice. Verse 14 says that Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. It wasn't animals that Jesus sacrificed. It was his own sinless self. His sacrifice is also different in another significant way. Have a, a look at down at verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, there are so many wonderful joys in having a new baby, uh, aren't there, Shirley and uh, Toma? Uh, But one of the unpleasant features uh, of having a new baby is the endless cycle of washing. Uh, Babies can dirty things quicker than you can clean them. Vomit here, dribble there, other bodily fluids anywhere you care to imagine. You wash every day and it's never finished. Uh, You never feel as if you ever get anywhere, the job is never done, there's no job satisfaction. It doesn't matter how much work you do, it's never any closer closer to completion. And can I say that the, the old earthly system of sacrifice for sins was just kind of like that. The sacrifices were never finished. The job was never complete. Day after day, year after year, the sacrifices had to continue being made. Why? Well, chapter 4, verse 10, verse 4 tells us why. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The endless cycle of sacrifices were actually a constant reminder that people are essentially sinful and they were never able to ultimately do what was needed. They couldn't ultimately deal with sin and cleanse our consciences so that we can approach a holy God. The old system did not... I did have a job to do, even if it wasn't complete. And that is, it points forward to the death of Jesus. God was giving us a visual aid of what was ultimately required. A sacrifice that would achieve real and lasting forgiveness and cleanse the conscience. Jesus is the one who gave his own blood to be shed for us. And he did it once and for all, verse 26 says. His sacrifice worked to take away the sins of many. In verses 12 and 14, he did what no number of sacrificial animals by mere men could ever achieve. That is, he secured an eternal redemption for us and purifies our conscience. See, the best worship man could offer God could not do the job it was supposed to do. 
Human beings remained stained with sin. Animal sacrifice only worked until the next sin. And Jesus' perfect sacrifice secured an eternal redemption. That is, he took away our guilt. He cleansed our consciences once and for all. So here's what the author of Hebrews actually wants his readers to understand because here they are and they're facing persecution for their Christian faith. And he's been urging them to hold fast to Jesus because nothing is worth letting go of Jesus. And if they're, if they're Jewish people who have become Christians, then they may have been tempted to go back to Judaism, which was a protected religion. But the old covenant, with all of its rituals, could never cleanse the conscience, could never redeem us from our sin, could never secure our eternal redemption, could never ensure that we would receive God's promised eternal inheritance under the new covenant. But all these things are fulfilled in Christ. That is, our sins remembered no more. Our conscience is purified once and for all. Our eternal future completely secure. How does Jesus do this? Well, he did it on the cross. Look at verse 15. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. See, it doesn't get any better than this, especially when you understand your destiny. You know, I remember a camp that I was once on. Uh, we had a competition. Uh, there was a line on the ground. We needed to stand still and see how far we could jump from a standing start on the, from this line. And one guy thought he'd come up with a way to beat everyone. And he, so he put a, a chair on the line. Uh, and he thought that by launching himself up that, he, he felt that the, the higher height that he would jump from would get him further and thus win the competition. But as he jumped, the chair flew out from underneath him and he landed straight on his face. And very shortly after in hospital because of the damage that he'd done. Now, if that guy had understood what was destined to happen to him, then he wouldn't have done what he did. And God has made very clear what the destiny of every man, woman and child is in chapter 9, verse 27. Look what he says there. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You see, here is the destiny of every single person to die and then to stand before the holy God of the universe to face judgment. Now, the dilemma, of course, is our sin, our guilty consciences, our morally defiled human natures like that slab of meat, and we can't survive that judgment. But Jesus has provided a way to face our destiny unscathed. Look at what verse 28 says. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What a powerful gift God offers us. God offers Christ the ultimate sacrifice to bear our sin, yours and mine, once and for all. And instead of coming to judge, he comes to save us. He secures our eternal redemption. We long for that. 
That's what redemption means, cleansing from defilement so we can enter God's presence and live. And so how's your conscience? Do you know the joy of a cleansed conscience? Or are you racked with guilt for sin that you haven't accepted God's conscience cleansing forgiveness for? You know, I was reflecting on this passage this week and I was thinking there is a real danger here today. That is, I actually haven't told you anything you don't already know. You know, you're sinful, you've heard it. Jesus died for you, you know that. That's all I've told you today. So why do some of us still live with sin and with guilt? The old way enforced the guilt trip. Sacrifice was a reminder of our sin. The whole system under the old covenant really acted as a visual age. That is, it pointed forward to a future time, to a time of the new order, the new covenant that has now come. The old way was ineffective. It couldn't really do the job of making people clean before God. It didn't clear the conscience. But now in Jesus, the real thing has arrived. The sacrifice of Jesus means that God remembers our sin no more. Leave your sin. Leave your guilt at the foot of the cross because that is where Jesus dealt with it when he died for us. Forgiveness doesn't mean a kind of a mere improvement in human nature. Christians aren't people who are just trying to be a little bit better than other people. It means redemption. It means being rescued out of our old nature of defilement. It means rebirth. You know, it's, often, it's not often that we get to enjoy the very best of anything. I mean, we may not be able to afford the very best holiday package. We don't have the best job. We're maybe not in the best class. Friendships aren't always the best they could be. And yet as Christians, in the things that matter most, we have nothing but the best. Jesus Christ, the best priest, offered the best sacrifice in the best temple so that we can enjoy the best possible relationship with God and the best future imaginable. Isn't that good news? What a wonderful joy that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God, slow to anger, bounding in love. You treat us with mercy. You treat us with love. You understand our weaknesses and our failures. And you don't leave us to wallow in them, but you have sent your son Jesus, who has died in our place to pay the penalty for our sin, that we might stand before you joyfully, forgiven, freedom uh, from guilt and shame. Father, it's good news. Please encourage us with it today, we pray. Amen.